Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. The more tools we have for self-care and more tools for mastery we have, but if you're not exposed to them, then you don't know what to do with it. And if you're not exposed to like tools for how to deal with anger or tools for how to do deal with sorrow, then you're dealing with a lot of people who are going to be afraid to address their anger or afraid to work with their sorrow. And they think that there's some sort of badge of armor for like, look at me and how much I can tolerate and look at me for how much I can, I can hold. And that's not resilience. That's not true. Resilience is not just persisting and persevering on your own, despite all odds. It's actually masterful living in the world. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. If you haven't checked it out yet, our Sunday Quiver is like a behind-the-scenes DVD for the episodes, in which we recommend articles, books, videos, and more that are related to the themes of the week's interviews. And this week, our topic is the science of happiness. So visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter to sign up and learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at HostGator. So maybe after what I told you in the last few episodes, you're considering starting a website, but you really have no idea where to start. So I thought I'd share a quick story with you. Before we started The Unmistakable Creative seven years ago, I started a bunch of websites, most of which you've probably never heard of because they didn't really go anywhere. But each one of those early websites taught me something which ended up making a big difference later on because I learned from those early failures. So even if you're not sure about what you want to do, sometimes just getting started will teach you a lot. And our friends at HostGator are perfect for that. They have 24-7 live support via phone, chat, and email, which is incredible incredibly reliable. They have an easy to use website builder if you're not too tech savvy. And if you really want to get your hands dirty, they have one click WordPress installs. And for our listeners, they're offering 30% off all their hosting packages. So visit hostgator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative. Amelia, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So I actually came across you by way of our mutual friend, Jonathan Fields, when I emailed him and asked um, if he had any uh, people who he thought would make for fascinating guests on Unmistakable Creative. And given how highly I think of his work, I knew that uh, his reference would definitely be solid. So rather than me giving it away for our listeners, uh, can you tell us a, a bit about yourself, your story, your journey, your background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to now? Wow. Um, it's so humbling to have one of your, like, uh, I love Jonathan so incredibly much. He's one of my favorite people on the whole planet. And then to have him think that my life is fascinating, just humbles me to no end. Um, and I think it's fascinating to be asked about your own story because you, you know, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. So you kind of go through life and like, really me, like I'm so, so normal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'll tell you some of the things that I think are, um, 
have made me who I am today. Um, I should start off with who I am today, and, and then I guess I'll work backwards. So I'm the president and CEO of a company called The Flourishing Center, and we provide learning and educational experiences um, for people who are passionate about human potential, and we do so using positive psychology and the science of mind-body medicine. And so I'm, I'm passionate about the bridge between science and application and how we can use all of these incredible things coming out in the world of research to make ourselves better. Um, so that's a lot. So my work really consists of teaching and training, and I run a certification program in positive psychology to empower people who love this work as well to have science-based tools for helping people. Um, I guess my story started. I was I was born in in Kiev, Ukraine, um, in the in the eighties, and uh, was born ninety miles from Chernobyl. And part of what my parents, uh, the part of their decision to immigrate our family from the U.S. and um, from from Russia or Kiev at the time, Ukraine at the time, to the U.S. had to do with many factors: the fall of communism being one, um, and and uh, Chernobyl and the lifestyle that people were experiencing. Uh, my brother and I were starting to get headaches at a young age, and things that just we, my family knew that quality of life was. Uh, was being compromised. So they sought the American dream in choosing to leave Ukraine with my brother and I and start a new life for us in America. And, you know, the immigrant story of coming to the U.S. with just a few hundred dollars to their name. And my dad really only knew just a handful of words uh, in English. I was taught the difference between crocodile and alligator back then. I don't actually know what they are now, but I recall <laughs> at a young age being being taught some random random Russian, uh, random English words and I uh, just remember being a really really happy child but making this transition um, with my family and I recall moving to the states and uh, living uh, my, my family was incredibly supportive but obviously very hard working and I attribute a lot of my hard work work ethic to my family and seeing just how what they were willing to do for their family. Um, grew up in, in New York, in Brooklyn, and my family moved out to Long Island when I was a child. And some of the more turning point, uh, fascinating turning points of, of my life really happened around 14. I would say that 14 was that pivotal time um, in many ways. Um, one of the big ones was the, 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 some of the big things that happened for me that year is, number one, I started my first career at the riping age of 13 and, and a half, almost 14, I started working as a, as a children's party entertainer. Um, this is really helpful being from an immigrant family because I was able to, while my parents were able to provide the basic needs for me, um, growing up as the poorer family in a more uh, suburban, well-off community, um, I was able to start kind of standing on my own two feet and, and being a little bit more inter uh, independent. And my career that I would then last me for 12 years was actually entertaining kids parties. So I entertained uh, birthday parties, weddings, communions, christenings, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. Um, I was always, quote unquote, very mature for my age. I looked older and I got this opportunity to start off as a, as a DJ dancer, as a party entertainer. And it was a natural place for me to to hang my um, my uncomfortably high levels of enthusiasm for life and energy and passion and um, got to have a lot of fun 
doing my work and also got paid really well for it. Um, especially when most kids my age were not even thinking about being able to work or later on when they were 16 or 17, they were, you know, having pizza, they were working at, working at a pizzeria. Um, and I was making a few hundred dollars off of, uh, off of kids' birthday parties and, and being able to do some really, really cool work and working with a lot of adults and, uh, and, and just had a lot of responsibility, a lot of opportunity to use my creativity and basically create experiences for people. And I, I loved my work. I loved that I got to come into people's sacred rituals in their life. Um, and, and, be a part of those experiences and make them really special for them. And I, I loved kids and I love playing with kids and I love that I could play with them and give them back after a couple of hours. It was phenomenal. And, uh, and I also really loved this ability to make people happy for a few hours at a time and just bring joy and love and enthusiasm into their life. Um, so I started doing that when I was 14, paid my way through high school and college and graduate school and learned a lot of really fascinating life skills. Um, one, how to make things fun. Two, how to think on my feet when you know, there would be all sorts of fascinating. They should make reality TV shows about the party entertainment industry because fascinating things happen. Um, so that was one thing in 14. Um, the second is my brother passed away. He tragically died um, at a uh, in, in, Long, in Long Island, in Long Beach. He was 24 years old. I was 14 years old and he was swimming at night with his fiance and a few other friends on a beautiful summer night. Um, and he and his friends were swimming and his fiance started drowning along with one of the other girls and he ran in to try and save her. Uh, his fiance survived and my brother and one of the other girls passed away and it was a tragedy like no other for any family. And I remember, you know, remember the days as though it was yesterday to this day and so many pivotal moments of my life from that point forward. Um, one is I remember being in my room kind of saying, okay, Amelia, this is what you see in the movies. This is that point in a person's life where they make the decision. Uh, am I going to be bitter, um, and, and hate life and make excuses and, and stay in this place of why me? I wasn't even in a place of why me, to be honest. I was more like, why my mom and why my dad? Like why these two people who have done nothing wrong to anyone their whole lives have just worked hard, been honest and just did everything for their family. Why did they have to experience this agony and this pain? I just remember seeing my mom laying in bed, immobile, just like staring at the ceiling. And I, and I remember that I was in this why us place. And I also intuitively knew that it wasn't going to be helpful. So I made a decision then um, that it was that pivotal point where I was going to either use it to become more bitter and turn to drugs and turn to alcohol like other people my age had already been doing at 14. Um, or I was going to use it to be a better person. And I remember making a commitment at that point in my life to say, I'm going to do what he couldn't do. Um, I'm going to use this to be a better person and I will, I will carry his memory forward. And it's funny because actually I was just with Jonathan a couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we were, um, away for this, this retreat that, uh, he had coordinated and, uh, and one of, one of our colleagues said to me, you know, Amelia, it's almost like you're living 
two people's lives in one life. So, you know, right now I'm, I'm 31 years old and, and I've, I've done, I've done a lot in my life and not because I needed, I didn't think it was because I needed to do a lot, but it's just sort of like, I just, I, I do. And I, I use my love and I use my passion. And so it was funny to hear this person say, it's, uh, they said, Amelia, it's almost like you're living two people's lives or trying to do what two people would accomplish in one lifetime or three people would accomplish in one lifetime. And I just had this flashback to like my 14 year old self and was like, Oh crud, did I, did I make a commitment to live out two people's lives, lives in that time? And was this my way of trying to keep my brother alive, um, as a child? So it was, that was a fast forward to today. But back then, um, I recall this moment where I I decide I'm going to use it to be a better person. I hated books. I really wasn't all that studious. My brother was the quote unquote smart one. He was the one who loved to read and loved school. And I was, uh, you know, I, I was the one with the fixed mind set around intelligence and just hadn't hadn't invested my energy there um and uh um so with that in mind like I made that shift and then another set of things started to happen at that age um my my dad became a diabetic right away and um my mom became diagnosed with ovarian cancer about a year and a half later and um the the things that that led me to an understanding about was that there was more to the more to health and well-being than um, most people I thought were were taking into account. And I remember going through lots and lots of doctor's appointments and procedures with my mom and my dad, and all of these these medical things were coming up for them. And my my family, coming from a very strict Russian background, is like you know you don't talk about your feelings, you don't talk about your emotions, you don't go to see a psychologist or a therapist for support or anything like that. And so um, the um, the the connections I was starting to make at that age were really stemming from watching them and and the things that we battled with their well being and my my mom lived with ovarian cancer for ten years and most of my my high school years and college years were were consumed in some ways also by her well-being. So she went through multiple, multiple surgeries, everything from hysterectomies to surgeries for hernias to getting more organs removed to living with an an open uh, vacuum, a wound vacuum on her stomach for about four months, um, trying to just like rid her bodies of infections, which, um, and, and so all sorts of fascinating things that I was watching the Western world be able to keep her alive and to keep this disease at bay. And all the while they were saying, this is so unique for ovarian cancer. Mostly people with ovarian cancer live about six months. Um, And here you are, you've lived six years, eight years, 10 years. She went through three or four full rounds of chemotherapy. And I remember saying, well, is it possible that the reason her, her cancer is so unique is because it's, it's more, much more emotional or energetic or spiritual than, than what we're, than we're able to look at. Like she's lost her child and here she is, she has cancers in her womb and, um, and so it got me passionate about the mind body connection. It got me passionate about vitality and well-being. Um, because up until then as a kid, I remember like I was a cigarette smoker and I didn't really know much about health and nutrition or physical activity. I just, you know, wasn't, wasn't all that quote unquote fit. Um, but I also knew that I was, um, I, and, and so my, my motto back then used to be, Oh, whatever, everything causes cancer. 
And then I watched cancer and I watched heart disease and I watched these things happen. And I was in those doctor's offices being, um, being from an immigrant family. One of the things that I found is that you catch on the culture, you catch on the language a lot quicker than your parents do. And so you end up being the parent at times. And so some of the experience, you know, a lot of these doctor's office visits, I was always the one translating and trying to help my parents make decisions um, that when I look back on them, I probably wasn't ready to make when I was like, you know, or help them make it at the age that I was. But it made me really passionate about well-being and understanding the mind-body connection and 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 healthful living um, in a way that was not just in my mind, it really was in my bones. Um, so I went on to college, I studied psychology, I minored in art, business and philosophy. Um, I, after my undergraduate experience, I was very, 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 very blessed to have been um, accepted to the University of Pennsylvania for my master's in applied positive psychology. And Positive psychology was a new field. Um, it still is a new field, but even back then, it was even newer. It was the program I got accepted to was only the second time they had been running it, and so I got to study with the founder of the field of positive psychology, and and be in this booming field at a very uh, early time. And uh, prior to, I thought I was going to be a psychologist and sneak happiness in the back door because I, while I love psychology and I love science, I also found that I wasn't, um, I, I, I didn't gravitate to wanting to be a quote unquote clinical psychologist or while I could work clinically with people, I had been exposed to actually, uh, Srikumar Rao, uh, was one of my early mentors and he had exposed me to self-help books and to spirituality and to Indian mythology and to things that were really, really lighting me up. And I just came from this career as a party entertainer where I got paid good money to have fun for my work. And so there was no way that I was going to uh, choose work in the world that, that I didn't love, that I didn't adore. Um, my influences of Srikumar and, and other self-help gurus that I was studying from while being in, in college, I just, I kind of was very clear that, that life really could be what you created to be. And I was studying the power of the mind and reframing my mind chatter and studying the ability to work with my emotions and, and use gratitude practices and, and altruism and seeing the world, not from a me centered reality, but from an other centered reality. And I just, I knew that I was going to do work in the world that, that lit me up. And I, I felt that I was always kind of given this express ticket in my, in my life where, um, I was taking courses and workshops and, and life experiences with people who were twice my age, sometimes three times my age. And I just always felt incredibly blessed that I had these like very early on influences where I was almost getting like, um, the, the express course and that many people had to go into careers that they hated before they went to what they loved. And I was just going straight for what I loved. And, um, another thing I should add about my like 14 year old pivotal point, And I feel like I've been going on forever, but, um, is, uh, it was really also my first, um, first opening into spirituality when I was, when I was 14 and my brother passed away in that I, um, 
had a lot of fascinating experiences um, as, as a child when that happened. And I'd never really sought out, quote unquote, like psychics or intuitives or mystics. But um, one of my one of my colleagues in the entertainment industry happened to be a median, as she called it. And um, she started telling me things when my brother passed away that were just really fascinating that no one else really could have known. And it, it got me kind of turned on to this concept that there's more to life than just the body and just um and, and what we see and from that point when she started to kind of open open up my my understanding or this belief that there might be a concept of a spirit or soul or energies and combine that with Srikumar Rao's um connection to to Indian spirituality um I really feel like it, it plugged me into a very strong spiritual belief, um, a belief in unity and a belief in oneness and a belief in a benevolent universe that I feel like I've, I've plugged into and I've had strong trust in. And so a lot of my life has just been focused on aligning myself and aligning my energy. And, um, and from this place of alignment, just been able to, to walk, um, walk knowing that the, that the bridge is being built as I walk upon it. Whereas, um, I've seen times in my life, my wanting to kind of be in that place of knowing, and I'm a Capricorn and I love to do things. I love to control scenarios and, and be on top of what's going on and take that with the immigrant mentality of like parenting your parents and, and being fiercely independent. I've also had this strong influence where I really feel like I'm constantly just surrendering and leaning into where the universe is wanting me to go. And I feel that most of the time I just, I show up as a humble servant and I say, Hey, you know, what's needed of me in this moment. Um, so for my master's in positive psychology, I started uh, coaching and speaking practice, teaching people the science of positive psychology and tools for becoming happier, for becoming more resilient, for peak performance, for achievement, um, and and different 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 topics within well being. Um, I went on to do lots and lots of certifications and everything from. Uh, different forms of yoga and teaching yoga to Thai yoga massage and Reiki and life coaching certifications. And I basically was such a, a certification junkie, um, really couldn't, if there was a tool out there that could help people become happier and healthier, especially if it was proven by science, even if it wasn't proven by science, but especially if it was proven by science, I wanted to know about it. And I, and I basically saw myself as a tool collector and a tool distributor. Um, and then I think the ultimate sign of a, of a certification junkie is you just go out and you make your own certification. Um, so I've been running training programs for we have a few hundred individuals in, in the, um, throughout the U S and Canada. And we have our first international program right now where people are, are studying positive psychology. Um, the program I've created is now in 11 cities across the U S and Canada. We've got coaching certification, uh, programs that go along with it. And I've just been um, very, very, very grateful that I get to to teach and to speak and to empower people to feel empowered about their ability to control their mind and their body and live really wonderful lives. Um, I mean, I can go on and on, but I think I think after uh, after about twenty five minutes, I, I I should shut up now. <laughs> well, it's very clear to me why Jonathan referred to you as a guest. Uh, there's so much here that I want to ask you about. Uh, the, the first place I, I want to start really is with growing up and, and childhood. Um, I think that, you know, for us uh, listening to this, 
I can't help but wonder what misperceptions that we have about what it's like to grow up in a communist country and, and that whole experience, like, you know, what we've read and what we've seen in history books probably doesn't even do it justice. So I'm curious, you know, when you look at people who are listening to this or people who have just read about it in books, I mean, what's the difference between the perception that we have of it based on the media that we've consumed versus the reality of it? And of course, how has that influenced and shaped decisions that you've made throughout your life? Oh, gosh. Um, it's, it's interesting. I've never really considered myself a huge history buff. And I think that the reason for it is I've just always been so confused by how subjective it is. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that maybe my the communist influence is actually why I'm so confused by how subjective it is. Um, I only once went back to Kiev, Ukraine with my family after we had immigrated and found it so fascinating to be amongst a culture that did not know what to believe in. And I remember my mom telling stories. She was a history teacher in, in Russia. And my dad was um, an architect and, and a topographer. And when they moved to America, my dad became a car driver. And my mom went to work as a counselor in a mentor, retired home. And uh, as they talked about their past careers, I remember my mom saying that as a history teacher, textbooks would be swapped out. Um, it would be telling history in one way and then she'd be given a new textbook and suddenly the facts were slightly different and she'd be told you have to, um, you have to teach it this way now. And I just remember thinking, well, that's messed up. You know, you would think that history is just history. And so again, this idea of creating our own reality and multiple perceptions I was exposed to at a young age. And I think it made me kind of like not, um, not as into history. That's why I liked science and I liked math. Math, you could prove things. Um, you had, you had proofs for your, your, your arithmetic and for your calculus. Oh my gosh, I love that. Um, I think that one of the, the misperceptions is that at the end of the day, I really felt that people were happy. Um, I did not get the sense growing up that my family was, was unhappy, but then there would be, you know, so just like normal day-to-day life, people went about their business. And then every once in a while you get this like communist experience. Like I remember being a little kid playing down in the street and then remembering that the, that, um, the milkman was coming and you would wait online, long, long, long lines. I remember a lot of waiting on lines as a kid and I, you know, tell my mom like, Oh my God, you know, there's bread too. And I would like run and I would tell her with excitement. And I remember that my mom would put me online to wait for whatever it is that we were waiting to get, I guess, our distribution of, and she would go about her business. And I remember as a kid, actually just standing there kind of like scared out of my mind, like I'm waiting by myself but you at the same time felt perfectly safe. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, this this element where, where people are on the one hand happy and they go about their business and they go about their lives. But then there's, um, there's this, uh, you know, working, you, you work with what you're given. It was interesting to go back later um, to Kiev, Ukraine, after having had left and um, the, the role of appearances and keeping up appearances has always been kind of interesting to me. Um, in some ways I feel like I always rebelled from my Russian roots or my Ukrainian roots because I always thought that many of the people I'd come across that shared a common nationality, I always felt like oh, they're, they're so materialistic or so much is about appearances. And, and I would make these, these judgments. And obviously I, I don't mean I, I recognize my my judgment in that, and it wasn't it wasn't intentional, but it's sort of like the experience that I got. But then when I went to went back to Kiev, Ukraine, I was like, oh my gosh, like it makes sense. Like I see where this comes from from people. So the building that my family and I grew up in, my dad's hands were the last bits of construction 
that were done on that building since we left. So we left and then I think it was something like 15 years later, nobody else had done any kind of work on that building since the fall of communism. And so you look at this kind of decrepit, decrepit buildings, like the hallways are not in great shape and the building itself is, you know, you know things are peeling, things are falling apart. But then you walk into someone's apartment and it's immaculate. And it's beautiful and it's clean and it's well kept up. And you see that people take really good care of their stuff and and make things look beautiful within themselves. But there's this sense of like, whose job is it? Well, whose role? It's not my responsibility. Is it your responsibility? Um, it was fascinating to see how people on the one hand maintained appearances, maintained really, really good care of things that were theirs, but there wasn't, um, there's this failure to really keep at this shared sense of responsibility for things that were not um, theirs. And and I saw some of the messages that my parents, um, like my father in particular, got from from his upbringing that were confusing to me. So and I felt like you moved to a country like America and, and so much is focused on on kindness. And, and um, I, I remember wanting to volunteer. Uh, I thought volunteering is a beautiful thing to be able to give back to the world. And my dad would be like, why would you work for free? <laughs> volunteering is just working for people for free. And I and I was like, well, I don't see it that way, but I can it makes sense to me given his mentality that it was like, you know, there's there's this unspoken need for things to be balanced and you only did that which was required of you because why would you do more? Um, it wasn't, it wasn't rewarded. <laughs> why would you do more when others got the same thing as you? and got by um, doing less for the same. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And obviously it was interesting moving from being fairly middle class um, to kind of starting back off at the beginning, but even when they were middle class and that my, you know, my parents were both very well educated, the, the sense of lack of fairness that it wasn't really acknowledged and, and that they would wind up in the same position as others were just, you know, some, some of the things that, that were left with me in terms of memories. That um, capacity to create your own reality and have multiple perceptions, uh, based on on the background that you have now, do you think that everybody has that capacity? I think that everybody is constantly creating their own reality through their perceptions. Um, Well, I say I, I guess that it's also you know what psychology, the basics of psychology teach us is that you have a car accident and 50 witnesses, you're going to get 50 slightly different versions of what happened and what happens. And so by the time people are in their adulthood, like no, no, no two people will ever experience things the same because it does become so subjective. So I think we're constantly creating a story. Um, Human beings are wired to make meaning from their lives. So I, I saw that as a child, like, and I say this to when, when I give lectures now around around resilience is that our first go-to place, the first question that a person asks themselves when adversity strikes is actually the least useful question. And it is the question that everybody goes to, which is like something bad happens and our brain immediately goes, why? So my brother dies and I go, and my brain starts to try to understand why, like, why did this happen? And most of us just say, why me? Or why did this happen? Not in a way that we're really able to get an answer because we never will know. So the brain is constantly 
asking why, and it's a meaning-making machine. Because if you don't make meaning out of your world, you can't place yourself in time and space. And so we are constantly creating stories. It's just the stories are when we're not conscious of them, they happen by default. And you combine that with the fact that human beings are wired with a slight default to negativity more than positivity, that the negative in our lives is stronger than the possible positive, where we default to creating more stories about worry, more stories about anxiety, more stories um, about that. So for example, like I have a story in my mind as to why you invited me to be on this podcast. And you've got a story about why you might want me on this podcast. And after the podcast happens, I might change my story or you might change yours. Um, I think everybody has the capacity to do it because we're constantly doing it. Few um, Few people recognize that they can control their story and many people don't realize that part of their story that the clue into their story is actually their thoughts and their mind chatter so if you start keeping track of the thoughts that you're having on a day-to-day basis you can get more clued in to what is the story and what are the beliefs that you're holding about people about the world about work about parents about friends and that you can take control of your story by shifting your thoughts and your beliefs um, and how to go about that is 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 interesting Um, But I think that people also, it gets a bad rep because it's not the same as just saying to people, you can think your way into being a billionaire today or um, people confuse the field of positive psychology with positive thinking. And while I'm definitely considering myself as someone who subscribes to metaphysics and to um, mysticism and to the wonders of the universe and, and love looking at how we can create miracles and manifest things with our mind. I think many people don't really understand what that, what that is or how that works. And they just kind of confuse it with, with, with positive thinking and hopeful thinking and that it's kind of like burying your head in the sand. So uh, can people create the reality that they want to live? I think that they can, so long as they're using, they're, they're kind of playing with the rules, um, a little bit better than I think most people are exposed to them. Like if you only watch the secret, the movie, the secret, then you get kind of confused as to what the rules are. Um, and so, but once you play by the rules, uh, the, so, you know, if there, if there are such, which I think of as rules, um, I think that people can create that, which they're aligned to be creating from a, from a centered place, not from an ego place. There's more of my conversation with Amelia after this message from our sponsors. 80% of the people in the world don't fit into a standard size, and chances are you're one of them. Son of a Tailor makes 100% custom-fitted t-shirts to the unique measurements of each customer. And ordering is easy. You simply answer six simple questions, and their algorithm will construct the perfect t-shirt pattern, no extra measuring needed. All t-shirts from Son of a Tailor come with a perfect fit guarantee, and that means if you don't love your first t-shirt, they'll make you a new one, no questions asked. And Son of a Tailor has free worldwide shipping. So go to www.sonofatailor.com and use the voucher code creative at checkout for 30% off your first t-shirt. Again, that's www.sonofatailor.com and use the voucher code creative at checkout for 30% off your first t-shirt. Looking for a cool and creative gift to get someone you like? Imagine how happy they'd be when they got home from an exhausting day at work and all the ingredients to a delicious healthy dinner was right there waiting for them. Come on, you know that everyone's lives are crazy busy these days and people with kids never have time to shop after work. So help them out by getting them a subscription to Blue Apron. Or how about someone who just had a baby and can't even get out of the house or maybe newlyweds who want to pop open a bottle of wine and cook a romantic meal together. 
Blue Apron is a gift they're guaranteed to love because Blue Apron provides ingredients and instructions on how to make amazing meals for less than $10 per meal. And nobody in my family will let me anywhere near the kitchen because they're convinced I'll set their kitchens on fire and burn their houses down. So Blue Apron is a perfect solution to make a home-cooked meal for them without them wanting to disown me. And get this, each meal can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. Plus, Blue Apron provides meals for all dietary needs. You can make dishes like chicken cacciatore or kimchi and barley miso ramen right in your own kitchen. Cook with ingredients that you've never used before, like watermelon, radishes, and purple potatoes. And the recipes are between five to 700 calories per portion, so it's delicious and it's good for you. And right now, you can get your first two meals for free at blueapron.com slash podcast. That's blueapron.com slash podcast. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. There's an old way to buy a car and a new way to buy a car. Technology continues to evolve. Everything evolves, really. There was a time when the hard drive you carry on your keychain weighed as much as a ton of bricks and cost about a month's rent, which I know is hard to imagine if you're a millennial, but there was actually such a time not too long ago. And before you know it, drones will be delivering your packages. So as technology and innovation advances, it would make sense that there's a new and better way to buy a car. And finally, there is. It's called True Car. And what makes True Car special and unique is their certified dealer network. They've partnered with over 10,000 True Car certified dealers that also believe in a new way to buy a car. With True Car, you get guaranteed savings and true car certified dealers will honor the savings it's just that simple true car users save an average of three thousand two hundred and twenty one dollars off manufacturers suggested retail price with no hassles or headaches it's how car buying was meant to be and over two million cars have been sold by the true car certified dealer network so visit truecar.com or download the true car app and start saving true car never overpay and of course, last but not least, our friends at HostGator. If you're considering starting any sort of online project, they're your one-stop shop for everything. They have 24-7 live support via phone chat and email. They have an easy-to-use website builder if you're not too tech-savvy. And if you want to get your hands dirty and are a bit more advanced, they have one-click WordPress installs. And for our listeners, they're offering 30% off all their hosting packages. So visit HostGator.com creative and use the promo code creative. Now, back to my conversation with Amelia. Why do you think that we see such a... Uh, wide spectrum then in terms of people's capacity to create their own stories. It's hard to read my, my friend and mentor, Charlie Gilkey says it's hard to read the label when you're stuck inside the jar. Uh-huh. And I think most people are stuck inside the jar. Um, I, you'd be surprised how many people I uh, speak to don't even recognize that they have mind chatter like introducing them to actually taking the voice in their head seriously and not even realizing that they, they, you know, they just go about their day and they're largely reactive. And so when you're in the jar, you're not, you're not aware of it. It's like, it's so basic to our life. It's like, it's like asking a fish what's water. And so as this is why mindfulness practices um, are so powerful for people is they get people taking a moment to get stepping outside the jar or the process of, of personal inquiry and asking yourself questions about what's important to you. What do I value? What are my strengths? What do I want? Why am I here? Existential questions are, are powerful. And I think that many people um, don't go there because it requires, there's certain prerequisites to be able to, to step into that place. Firstly, is you need, you need to not be in a place of fight or flight. So if people are in a stress space and they are, um, they're, they're in a stress space and they are, um, are in a place where they are trying to just get by. They're not negative emotions. They narrow our focus. So when I stub my toe, I'm not thinking about how can I cure world hunger? 
I'm thinking about my toe and how much my toe hurts. And it's me and my toe in that moment. And so if people are in this narrowed and focused place where they're worried, where they're anxious, where they're judging themselves, when they're comparing themselves, they're not thinking creatively or broadly. And they're not, they're not uh, going to do this stuff that I think requires us to be north of neutral, like asking yourself the question, why am I here? And, and what's the purpose of my life? Um, is a luxury question, is a question that that people get to ask themselves when you've got some of your basic needs met. But if you're if you're trying to just get by, it will be much harder to. Or even if you don't, if you, even if you're not in a place where you're quote unquote need to just get by, but subjectively you think that you are. <laughs> or- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Or you're worried about your future, it'll just be harder to access that type of thinking. We're not wired to think that way um, when we are in a place of negative emotion. But once we settle and once we're in a state of neutral emotion or a baseline where we're kind of calm and we find ease or maybe into a positive emotional space like feeling grateful or feeling connected or feeling curious, then people can start to to do this other kind of work and they can become more purposeful and they can become less reactive and they're able to see some benefit to being that way. And then they start to realize like, hey, I can choose how I feel. Sukumar Rao once taught me that your happiness is your greatest gift in this world. And most people take their greatest gift, this beautifully wrapped package that they have, and they give it away. And they give it away to people who really haven't deserved it. So he used to say, when you give your happiness away, you're giving, you know, whether you give it away to the bus driver or to the um, colleague that pushes your buttons or to your parents that stress you out or to anything, when you give your happiness away, giving them the greatest gift you've ever been given. And, you know, are they worth it? Are these people these people worth you giving the keys to your happiness? And I remember that resonating and going, yeah, I want to control my happiness. I control the keys. And sure, these people might push my buttons, but they're my buttons. I install them. <laughs> and so it's my, my choice to say whether or not they're going to push my buttons or not. And so it takes, it takes a while to start kind of taking back the reins to your life. And I don't do it perfectly by any means. It is a constant work in progress. But I think most people just haven't had the experience or the opportunity to really try it on. From your time as a, a party entertainer, uh, what are the lessons in human behavior and psychology that you learned that you've applied to your work uh, throughout the rest of your life? Mm, oh gosh. Um, the importance of play, the importance of play and and how expansive and essential it is for people to play, um, to notice the difference between, you know, it's, it's almost like running all... 12 years of social experiments uh, or, or, or many little case studies, especially because as a party entertainer, I, I frequently, my favorite was that I had certain families that they had like four or five kids. I actually, for like four or five, uh, you know, I went through all of the kids' bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs with them or their communions and christenings. So I even got to see sometimes same families. Um, and I remember just the, the note, noticing the difference between the most joyful groups of people versus those who were less joyful. And the ability to play was always such a theme. And I loved that I could get adults playing and I could kind of infuse them with positivity and with happiness. Um, but the, actually the big one uh, from my party entertainment days is the role of ritual. So I learned a lot about behavioral synchrony that I still use to this day. So I would I would uh, get into a crowd of, let's say, you know, some of the bigger parties would have two to 300 people and everybody would be doing their own thing, you know, drink in hand, people talking. But it was like the music would come on. I would have the microphone in hand and I would just turn on my party entertainment self. And um, I knew that if I could just get those people clapping their hands to the beat of the music, that I would get them, that I would hook them, and that they would be 
rather than 300 individuals at an event, suddenly they come together as one. And a lot of the social psychology and evolutionary psychology tells us that as human beings, we're wired to need to connect, to wire, we're wired to want to belong. And I think one of the reasons that you know, Tony Robbins will have these wildly successful events with thousands of people in the crowd, and it was for so many reasons, but one of them is he t- taps behavioral synchrony. There's a reason why people love Zumba as a fitness modality. And when we move in unition, especially to a beat with a group of people, we feel connected. And so many of the things that I teach today about uh, about meaning and purpose and and how we can give our body our, our evolutionary needs and, and how we feel connected to a community, one of them really came from doing parties and recognizing that, you know, if you think about the, the wedding dynamic, um, you know, the wedding is a circle around the, around the bride and groom and, and these rituals that we create in our society to solidify that, that presence and that wedding and that marriage and, and to have the whole community come together. And that part of the joy for people was the play, the music, the movement that they got. But part of it also was the sense of connection to one another and why people like to party. Um, so I, I carry that with me in and and that role of, of infusing ritual and and experiences that are unifying. I bring that into my work. Um, I, I sometimes call my work edutaining. So I, I bring education um, and I educate people, but I use my entertaining background to create somatic learning experiences for people or when, where we bring learning into their body. And so I think that I think that's one of the big ones. Um, also the role of food. So <laughs> always giving people a, a, a beautiful snack and a party favor is still uh, in, ingrained in me. So people who take my, my courses and my workshops know that usually you, you have some sort of snack that goes with the theme along with a little little party favor that goes with the theme as well. Um, just and that So the ability to create little delight experiences and how um, you know, th- those sort of things that were things that I did as a party entertainer that I still infuse today. So I have a question um, about the loss of your brother. Uh, you know, you said that you were 14 when it happened and you made a decision then that you could become a better person because of this. That to me is unusually self-aware for somebody who's 14 years old. I only know because I don't think I would have been as self-aware even at the age of 30. Uh, and so I'm wondering what you think constitutes that level of self-awareness that allowed you to do that and how people cultivate that in their own lives. It's a hard one for me. Um, it's, it actually is the part of the quest that, I, that brought me to my, my degree in positive psychology um, when I look back on my application essay uh, and what I wanted to study back then, um, there was two things. Uh, one thing I wanted to study was the role of savoring in healing from eating disorders. Cause I should have added that at the age of 14, I also became a bulimic um, and was, was suffering from or working with my bulimia probably from for as long as I was an entertainer. Um, it wasn't until I studied personal development and self-help and discovered things like 
gratitude and mindfulness and actually started to reframe my relationship with food um, that I actually began to shift. And I often say gratitude was the best diet I ever put myself on because food had previously been this point of control or this um, uh, excess to uh, lack that I roller coaster that I took myself on. So I, because I had been healing my own eating disorder with mindfulness and savoring, I wanted to go to Penn and study that as an intervention for eating disorders. Um, still, still never got around to it, but that was, that was part of my application essay. Uh, the second was I was really curious about resilience and whether or not it, and how it could be taught. Cause I knew now I know that we have something called post-traumatic growth, uh, to counter the post-traumatic stress disorder that we hear about. So if you think of it as a bell curve, you've got post-traumatic stress disorder on, on the lowest tail, and then you have post-traumatic growth on the upper tail. And then in the middle, you have just general resilience. And I knew that I had been really resilient in my life. And as a kid, I didn't really consciously think to myself, like, I remember making a choice, like I'm going to be a better person and I'm going to carry his memory forward. And I'm, you know, and part of it was also like, I, I can't, you know, I have to make my parents proud and, and do what he couldn't do and give my parents like, almost like, um, more reason to live, you know, quite a lot of pressure to also put on yourself as a 14 year old, um, that I had to deal with later on in life. Um, but I came, I came to Penn with that question in mind. Can I, is resilience something that I just happened to have figured out? Was it unique to me? Or can people learn and can I teach these skills to other people? Because I wanted to help other people be resilient. And I saw people going through plenty of things throughout their lifetime, whether it be loss. Like I feel like death has been a a huge theme in my life. I've helped many people deal with the loss of people in their life. I've also helped people in their transition points. And part of what, um, and, and I've helped people who have been on their deathbed and and help them find some sort of hope or peace in, in a way that I felt I from a young age, I've always felt really comfortable with death because I had so many experiences of it. I should add that my, you know, my brother has passed away. My mom has since passed away. My grandmother has passed. My half brother has passed. My, I've had multiple friends pass. And, and I think that my comfort level with a topic that many people are uncomfortable with as again, part of how I created meaning for my brother's death. It was, I was like, okay, even at a young age, when I was starting to attend these like bereavement groups in high school that were being offered, I felt that I felt better when I was able to attend these bereavement groups and help other people. Um, So I came to Penn with the question of resilience in mind and asking, was it just me? Was I just some freak that figured this out? Or, Or can this be taught? And I was trained in the Penn Resiliency Program and uh, and traveled to the UK and to Australia to, to help these programs that actually have shown that you can teach resilience skills. And it's part of what I teach today in helping people bounce back um, and bounce back better. So resilience is a skill that has multiple dimensions to it. I teach it as cognitive skills, as, as mental skills, as emotional skills and physical skills that we can actually learn. Um, so I think in terms of the, you know, now I can look back and say, now that I know what the formulas are and these, these skills for resilience are, I can see that, yes, there were many things that I was doing back then rather intuitively that had to do with reframing my thoughts, reframing my decisions, being more focused on being other centered and helping others helped me, um, the role of altruism or what we call selfish altruism. Um, and then to, and, and, and then the, this, the, that's one part of it. And the second part is just, it's kind of deeply uncomfortable for me to say, because I, I, I am so 
humbled and grateful by my life experience that I, I struggle with this because I don't want it to come across as a sort of arrogance or narcissism. Although I'm aware that most people in the personal development field, like in order to even like have, I think entrepreneurs need a certain level of, of narcissism in order to be able to do what they do. But I think I've been fed uh, messages around, around who I am and, and, and how I've come to be in the world and throughout my lifetime. So I remember as part of these, uh, a lot of these psychic readings that I would get when I was a kid and these mystical experiences that I was having, um, both with my brother's spirit and just, just random things like everything from being a party entertainer at a massive corporate holiday party in Manhattan where they would hire like tarot card readers to, uh, be a part of the event. And, you know, we're just like setting up the event and these like readers are like hanging around. So I would like get a tarot card reading and I'm like, you know, 17 years old getting tarot card readings and like the tarot card reader would like put down the high priestess card and she would be like you can do what I do and I'm like what do you mean I can do what you do and I think there have been these um these these messages that I've um gotten from a young age around being a crystal kid or or a um kind of like a um um, just just who I am in the world being spiritually tapped in and I think I really have felt that from a really young age like I think I've most of my life I've just I've been I've been really clear, I think, for the most part about who I am, who I am, what I'm here to do, and feeling that spiritual connection. And so I've had some spiritual readings where people have said, like, this is your last lifetime or your last go around. Or I've had people say things like you're an old soul. That was actually probably the biggest one I should say is that from a really young age, I've constantly had people tell me I was an old soul. Even I remember being like five years old, like who remembers being five years old? I remember being five years old in the stroller in Russia. And I would like just kind of sit and like look up at like the adults. And I was super quiet as a kid. Um, Forget that now. I just can't shut up. But when I was a kid, I was like, just like really quiet and observant. And I remember kid like people would tell me, you're an old soul, you're an old soul. So I was always told you're an old soul, you're very mature for your age. It wasn't until I was in college where I was like, maybe I should read something about old souls since since everyone always tells me I'm an old soul. So whether it be being, whether it be the confirmation, just the confirmation bias of, of being told that as a, as a kid that I was quote unquote, so mature for my age, or whether it be because as an immigrant kid, you're kind of forced to take on a certain sense of responsibility. You grow up quickly. And I remember being seven or eight years old on the phone with AT&T arguing our, our like phone bill, because I was able to talk to the representatives better than my parents were able to. Um, so whether it be that you're kind of like forced to mature at a younger age with that, or from a spiritual perspective, if, if I've just, if this is my last go around as a spiritual being in a physical body on this planet and I've been quote unquote around for a long time, I'm, I'm not really sure what, what it is, but I've been extremely humbled and grateful for, for, for my life and my life experiences. And, and I really do think of it as just because of that spiritual connection and that spiritual attunement that I've, I've gotten exposed to. And, um, I really do believe that we're all energetic beings having a physical experience and I do my best to connect with the spirit of of my brother of my mother of just just spirit in general and I think that that might have contributed to the insights that I have to this day or or what where I was as a kid when I was more aware or, or had the ability to see that 
And last thing I'll say is I've, I've also, I think whether it be the immigrant mentality or what I've had incredible teachers. And I would say that what my zone of excellence was, was that I, I knew it. So I, um, I remember as a kid when my parents moved from Brooklyn to Long Island to give me and my brother, or me and my brother, my brother shortly passed afterwards, but give me, uh, opportunities, I didn't take them for granted. So it was like, I went from a public school in Brooklyn that didn't really have all those meant like that many extracurricular activities or things that you could do to suddenly like moving out to Long Island. It was like the land of opportunity as a kid, I could be in part of the drama club and the chess club and the math club. And I could do so many things. And, and I was just like, Oh my gosh, like I, I love to learn and here I can have all these opportunities. And I didn't, I didn't turn down opportunities. And likewise, when I came across great teachers, I literally would just like latch onto them in a way that I couldn't really understand why other people didn't. So when I, I had some incredible mentors throughout my, my lifetime and great, great professors in college. And so I just feel like that opportunistic, like if I can learn from you and you're willing to teach me, I was just, I was like a kid in Candyland. And I think that the uh, the blessing of just having so many incredible teachers at such a young age um, has al- was also a huge influence on me. So I want to ask you a question about something you said earlier um, that really caught my attention because I, I even wrote about it in my upcoming book. You mentioned that, you know, growing up in an immigrant culture, uh, things like psychological help and therapy are, are almost frowned upon. There's like a huge stigma around anything mental illness. And I actually thought it was only, you know, uh, relegated to the Indian community. I didn't realize it was prevalent among all immigrants. And I'm just really curious, uh, you know, what you have to say about that. And more importantly, how we start to change it. Mm. Yeah, it was fascinating because, you know, my mom, the, the thing I would, I would literally, I remember like crying, um, with my mom and dad. Cause I had this like moment of psychological revelation where I was like, my parents depend on me for their happiness level. Like my, well, my parents have incredible resilience. I also saw that, you know, there was a dark cloud over my parents that never went away. Um, my dad has humor is one of his top strengths. So I can see that little glimmer back in his eyes every once in a while when he makes other people laugh. But for the most part, my parents never uh, got their joy and happiness back um, after my brother passed away. And my mom in particular, I often felt that that I was her only, and she actually, talk about pressure, she would frequently actually even tell me that, that, that if it weren't for me, um, she would have committed suicide. She said, if it wasn't for me, she would have jumped in the ocean after my brother. And so I remember this moment of revelation where I thought to myself, like, uh, you know, my parents depend on me for their happiness level. And I was, you know, kind of like begging them to get help. And they were just like, look at me like a deer in headlights. Like, what do you mean? Like, everything's fine. Like, why would we need to get help? And then my mom had this misconception around what it meant to see a therapist because in her mind, and she just, I don't know where she got the story from, but it was the way that she saw it is she thought that what seeing a therapist meant was that it was going to, uh, someone was going to ask her to relive the pain or relive what happened or tell her what happened. And, and, and that was her conception. It was like, I couldn't, couldn't change it from her because I'd be fascinated. My mother, if anybody sat down next to her long enough, she would tell you her, her life story. She would be talking. She'd be asking you questions. She loved to talk to people, literally could not be quiet. 
talk to people all the time. And she would say, well, well, I can't talk to anyone. I don't, I don't like to talk to people. And I go, what do you mean? You talk all the time. And so we're almost like I, I did better therapeutically putting like plants of like planting a friend or at the time it was like a good test for any new boyfriend. I was like, put them in the room with my mom. Could they tolerate her talking to them about everything and anything under the sun and, and the therapeutic benefit that that brought her? So I think a lot of it is a preconception. Um, and there's just lots of different pathways. Um, therapy is just one pathway. I think it's 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 more about general self-care and, and self. Um, in, in my model um, at the Flourishing Center, I teach my students that the key to thriving is developing self-awareness, which enables self-compassion, which enables self-care which then further reinforces more self-awareness, self-compassion, and self-care. And so I think that people just need tools. And whether and cognitive tools are just one of the many. It's like whether it be working with a that working with a psychologist to deal with some wounding or working with a coach to help you get clear on your goals and 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 figure out how you're going to make things happen in your life to knowing how to physically care for one's body. Like I am shocked by the number of people in the world who don't breathe properly and don't walk properly and breathing and walking. We do all the time. And I'm just constantly thinking, why aren't we exposed to these tools and to these skills? So I think education of what are these things really is what's really key and helping people understand that there's lots of different pathways. And for my mother, I would have loved for her to, you know, I found, I find, I found some like, uh, like I said, backhanded approaches to to getting a little bit of like healing intervention, but it was just just misunderstanding about what is it and and that the stigma around needing support, I think just is multiplied by people not understanding the importance of self-care and that the more tools we have for self-care, the more tools for mastery we have. But if you're not exposed to them, then you don't know what to do with it. And if you're not exposed to like tools for how to deal with anger or tools for how to do deal with sorrow, then you're dealing with a lot of people who are going to be afraid to address their anger or afraid to work with their sorrow. And they think that there's some sort of badge of armor for like, look at me and how much I can tolerate and look at me for how much I can, I can hold. And that's not resilience. That's not true. Resilience is not just persisting and persevering on your own, despite all odds. It's actually masterful living in the world. Okay. Uh, so now I, I want to get into something a bit more practical and I, now I'm very clear as to why Jonathan referred to you. This has been phenomenal already. Uh, Thank you. so I want to get into the science-based tools for happiness, resilience, and peak performance. Um, I know that might even require another 45 minutes of talking between the two of us, but I think it's totally worth it. Cause I think I'm just so curious. Part of why I like the work that you do is that it's rooted in science. Um, that's why I've always appreciated books like the ones that Sean Acor has written. Like there's always science to back up these things, uh, more than the sort of hokey new age bullshit that comes out of things like the secret. Yeah. Uh, so let's get into some of those. Absolutely. Where do you want to start? Let's start with happiness. Let's do resilience and then let's do peak performance. Cause I'm guessing there's probably an entire like three hours that we could do on just those alone. So let's start with, let's, let's do those. Cause I think those are the key ones in my mind. Well, it's interesting because they're all, I would say they're all one, you know, yeah. happiness, resilience, and, and, uh, peak performance. Obviously when I, when I teach them and I teach specific tools for, for all of them, I teach them as different things, but 
when uh, on when you zoom out the lens, it's just people being able to show up in the world the way that they want to. Um, I the best container I can put for all of them is, as I mentioned before, self awareness, self compassion, self care, um, and so the way that I teach is first self-awareness and that people need to understand how their brain and body is wired. And when you learn how your brain and your body is wired, that self-awareness enables you to then be able to, to have compassion for yourself and then to be able to know how to do things about it. So when I talk about helping people become happier or be more resilient or be more, uh, perform at their, at their peak, the prerequisite is understanding what are we, what are we evolutionarily adapted and, and wired ourselves to. And so recognizing we're not wired for, for positivity, actually, we're, we're slight, we're wired for slight negativity and we're wired to have the possible bad be stronger than the good. And we're wired to be highly adaptive, which is good for resilience in the sense that, what we know is that if you come across an adversity, you lose your job, you go bankrupt, your company folds, your husband leaves you, you, God forbid, get into some sort of accident where, where you lose some sort of capacity. What we know is that human beings are wired to be very adaptive and we will be more resilient. We will be resilient if you usually, if you give people the right conditions, they will bounce back on their own. So understanding that there are certain wiring that we experience that 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 having that wiring is going to affect us in very specific ways so when it comes to self-awareness we can increase our own happiness level to know that we're wired to adapt and if you want to become happier you actually have to counter that adaptation so we're wired to have what we call hedonic adaptation where the people things and experiences in our life that bring us happiness actually will start to lose their impact over time. So if you want to become quote unquote happier in your life, one place that you can do is not turn to more things, but to actually train yourself in how to savor and experience and express gratitude for the things that you currently do have. Because as you do that, you actually counter the negativity bias and this adaptation that we're wired for. And you won't know to do that unless you really understand that like, hey, you know, I thought that this new job was going to make me happy, or I thought that having this new car was going to make me happy, or I thought that this new career change that I've been dreaming of um, was going to be the thing that makes me happy. And then you realize, well, none of those things will actually bring me lasting happiness because I adapt to them. So I can start expressing gratitude, I can start savoring the things that I do have so that I'm not necessarily looking for more, but then you begin to recognize that your emotions are within your control. So having tools to be able to do that, I think is really, really important. Um, I, I love gratitude because you don't need any more things. It's, it's just a lens through which you see the world. And there are powerful things that experiencing and expressing gratitude do for us. Um, one is that they almost like turn on the antenna in people's brain that tells your your unconscious mind when you're experiencing gratitude there must be good things happening in your environment so when people experience gratitude they they get themselves into a more positive emotional space when they're in a more positive emotional space they tend to notice more good things around them and because they tend to notice more good things around them 
they tend to have more to be grateful for. And when they're more grateful, they tend to be more aware. And then they're more aware of positives, they're more grateful. So there's this pretty powerful, positive um, upward spiral that people can start to shift into when they start to just notice what, what around them are they grateful for? What is a positive thing that is happening in their life that they can experience and express that for? Um, really, really simple one but one that people might not be as likely to let themselves do unless they understand that you're not wired to do it by default. So many people wait for something good to happen before they express gratitude, recognizing that it's not the things that happen to you that affect how you feel. It's your perception of them. And that in fact, your brain when left to its own devices will default to the negative unless you actually know to take the reins back and say, I'm going to write a gratitude journal, or I'm going to sit here and, and really enjoy my meal and express gratitude for the vegetables that are on my plate or the animal that's given its life or the chef that went to prepare it. And that we can actually begin to shift our happiness level by changing our perspective and changing our mindset. Um, so that's a happiness, a happiness tool, but it also becomes a resilience tool. Um, the buzz are my, my buzzwords for resilience is that the key to being resilient or bouncing back from adversity, uh, bouncing back better. That's one of the programs that I've, I've created. It's called bounce back better is the key is malleability or being, being flexible and being accurate, being adaptable and flexible and accurate thinking is what makes us more resilient. When we are able to see the situation from multiple vantage points, we're going to be more resilient than when we can only see it from to see the cause as being one cause. When we are more likely to tell the difference between what thoughts we're having are just conclusions that we're jumping to or, or perspectives that we're judgments that we're making, the more we can separate out our judgments of the situation from what's actually physically happening, um, the more the more accurate we are in our thinking, the more resilient we'll be. Many people don't realize that how flawed their thinking is. In fact, if you're, I often say to people, if you're, if you're, if your brain worked for you and you were the you were the boss of your brain, you'd fire it for the frequency at which our brain will jump to conclusions, make assumptions, make wild judgments like you're such an idiot or you're, you can't do this. You'll never make this happen. What were you thinking? Or he or she doesn't like you. All of those type of judgments, when you really think about them, we call them pessimistic beliefs because they're always in everything type of thoughts that actually stop people from being resilient. So the key to resilience is to start to doubt your doubts, to, to judge your judgments, and to take your brain to court more often. And a real simple way to do that is just to begin to notice how frequently is your brain being hijacked into this place of what ifs and worrying or into a place of judgment. And when you start catching those type of judgments, you can start to redirect them. A good place to redirect them is, is to just a place of being really curious. When, when people have judgments about the situation, um, they're, they're natural, they're normal, they're kind of knee-jerk places to go to, but they're not necessarily helpful because they don't give you anything you could really do about it. 
So let's say I'm preparing for a new launch and I look at someone else's website and I go, oh my God, their website is so much better than mine. And if I get caught up in that judgment place, I can go, oh, their website is so much better than mine. Or I see someone doing something similar to what I'm doing and I think to myself, oh my God, you know, what, why, um, no one's ever going to buy this product for me. This one's doing it, you know, so much better than I can. I don't have what it takes. What am I thinking? I'm such an idiot or, or I should have done this sooner. Any of these judgments that I'm having, they're not going to help me deal with the adversity. All they're going to do is just put me into a, the the pit of judgment where I just get so sucked up in my own uh, pity party that I'm not really going to want to do anything about the situation. But if I can question my thinking, if I can ask myself a more curious solution focused question, like what can I learn from the situation or what is this person doing that I want to be doing or what are my options? What's possible? Any kind of curious solution-focused question is going to get my brain out of an emotional judgment place and into a more useful solution-focused position. Um, so that I, that was a lot about resilience. And when I teach resilience, it's like a three-month program and we go through emotional and physical and uh, mental skills for it. But and, and so for each of them, there's specific tools that you can and skills that you can adapt from it. But the most powerful one is just catching the thoughts that are having to do with future worry and what if type of thinking and bringing yourself back to reality. None of those things have happened yet. And what can I do today about them? And also the judgments that we give ourselves and recognizing they're not helpful and that we're better served by asking ourselves about our curious question. Um, and then the last one, peak performance, because obviously when you're more resilient and you're better able to stay and, and stay focused on what's happening in front of you and not reactive, what happens there is you're able to be, you're, you're better able to perform at your peak. So peak performance training can be everything from how you get yourself into that zone place. Uh, what my, uh, Mikali Cheek sent me high calls flow or that in the zone place. And, and that can be created when you eliminate, uh, eliminate distractions and find a balance between your strengths and the challenge at hand. So you can kind of think of, of any task that you are working on as having two levers in it. How difficult is this thing for me to do? Uh, and, and how much do I have the skill and ability to do it? And if I want to get more in the zone, I can work those two levers to either decrease the challenge to make it more appropriate to my strengths, or I can up the challenge to make it more appropriate to my strengths where I could learn new skills and strengths to make it more appropriate. But when those two things are finally balanced, I'm more likely to find myself in the zone and be working at my peak. Um, that's one of the strategies, but there's many others, um, including doing things that you have a strong why for. Um, Nietzsche, Nietzsche is famous for saying, uh, man, with a strong, uh, man with a strong enough why can get through any how. And that quote became famous by Viktor Frankl, um, who used it in his book, The Man, Man's Search for Meaning, is that one of the ways that we can really get ourselves performing in a, in a high peak performance kind of way is to make sure that the things that we're doing have a good why behind them. Obviously, Simon Sinek made, it, uh, made, made that notion even more popular with his book, Start With Why. But we're, gonna, we're, we're more likely to have grit 
um, and passionate persistence for what we're doing and work at our best when we're able to tie the things that we're doing to a why as to why we're doing it that's meaningful. Well, uh, this has been phenomenal. Uh, you've just packed it with so many wonderful stories and insights. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all our interviews, the unmistakable creative. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm. What is it that makes someone unmistakable? Is it unmistakably creative or just unmistakable? However you want to define it. Oh gosh. Um, I think it's that why that, that we, I truly believe that we all come into this world with our unique why and purpose. And, and it's this beautiful thing that many people strive for. And it's something that I think we create. Um, what's my why for living? Why am I here? I think what makes people unmistakable is that deep yearning that we all have to matter. And when you tap your why, your why am I here? What impact do I want to make in the world? When we tap that, it's like, um, it's so silly, but I, I'm really reminded of the Disney, uh, I think it's or Pixar's Happy Feet. I don't know who made it, but Happy Feet that, you know, each penguin's got their own inner song and we're all looking for our inner song. Um, but I think that's what makes people really, truly, uniquely unmistakable is when they've tapped, tapped their reason for being here and they let themselves be themselves and they, they don't try to earn their stay on the planet, um, constantly trying to prove themselves based on, on what they, what they do, but they're really tapped into that center point in their heart and in their gut of, I matter. I have a reason for being here and I create that reason for being here. That that's my decision. I can, I can create my own purpose and, and then living that the difference between meaning and uh, having meaning in your life and having a sense of purpose in life research shows is that meaning is meaning is my life makes sense. Uh, I my life has meaning or I made meaning of my life. Whereas purpose is much more action oriented. It's uh, my, my dear friend and colleague, Karen Rockhind uh, and her work on purpose shows that purpose is the unique way in which you impact the, you, you actively impact the world. And so that action orientation of purpose, that it's this thing that you do in the world, it's much more active than just meaning. And I think that's what makes people unmistakable is when, when they're doing the voodoo that they do so well and that they're not trying to do other people's voodoo. They just do their voodoo. When you, when we all do our voodoo, we're at our best and we're truly happy. Well, <clears throat> this has been really, really phenomenal. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with the listeners. Oh, thank you so much, Trini. Thank you for having me. It's been so much fun. Yeah, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. You know, I've really, I've taken a, a lot of a different approach to personal development over the last almost two years now, where I used to like feel like there was something with, was broken with me. And then I'm like, all right, I got to go fix myself. Mm-hmm. So I'd read some, you know, self-help book or I'd go to some personal development seminar and they would be amazing. And I'd like find all these insights, and all these breakthroughs and I'd like get on the right track and I'd be like, woohoo, my life is like working again. 
I don't need that personal development stuff anymore. I'm fixed. <laughs> Which, and I, I'm, I'm saying this in a comical way, like kind of being over, um, emphasizing just kind of the absurdity of it. Because, I mean, I really did think that. It's like that, you know, that there's a way to fix ourselves and that we can get to somewhere where we can coast. Author Wendy Pearsall joins us to talk about the significant evolution of her body of work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.